Welcome to the Affair Care Podcast. I'm Cindy Taylor, the one of the co-founders here at Affair Care. And uh, of course, the other co-founder is my dear hubby, David, who is the man behind the camera. Today, we're going to conclude our series on biblical precepts about adultery. And the topic today is regarding notable cases of adultery in the Bible. And, and what can we learn from them? Specifically, I'm going to go over two uh, cases, if you will. <laughs> One is the instance where King David uh, c committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then the other one is the uh, pretty much the entire book of Hosea. Um, specifically, the first, I think it's like three chapters. Um, but we'll, we'll be going over um, those two instances. They're uh, kind of notable and um, kind of see what we can glean from them. The first uh, notable instance of adultery that I wanted to discuss is found, uh, it's the instance of King David with Bathsheba. And all of this uh, is described um, in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. Uh, chapter 11, we, we'll start off. Um, it starts, I believe, let me, let me just confirm here really quick. It starts right away in verse 1. So um, it's the spring, and David sends off his army to go and fight a war and try to take over this certain city. And uh, David stays in the Cushy Palace uh, while he goes and sends off his people to fight and die in his place. So the first thing we notice from 2 Samuel 11 is that David was not where he was supposed to be. He's the king. He's leading his people, and he went ahead and stayed back at home in the cushy palace. So he was not where he should have been. And um, this is one of the little things we can learn, like literally right off the bat, is that when we are where we shouldn't be, it can lead to problems. Okay, so then, then the next you know, a couple of verses, it describes how, so one night he's, you know, he's in the palace, he kind of let his eyes wander, he saw a lady bathing. Again, really quick, right away, we see that what happens when you let your eyes wander and you have not disciplined your eyes to stay off of, you know, like looking, looking around at other people. Now, I don't mean this mean, if you read anything else about King David, uh, he was clearly the apple of God's eye, but... He, as a human being, had a wandering eye. He was kind of a womanizer. So um, this was one of his, you know, about everyone has their little weaknesses. That was one of David's weaknesses. He was um, taken in by the ladies. He had lots of wives, and, and that, that was a problem for him. He saw Beth, this woman bathing. He's, he's up above at the palace, and he kind of looked down, and he saw her bathing. And he was overcome by lust. So he sent people to basically go talk to her, and she came to him, and they slept together. Now, we don't know if, um, you know, she came willingly, or if she put up a fight. It doesn't say, but it does say that he sent for her, and most likely getting a thing from the king, she may have thought she kind of had to, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, we don't want to project there, but she did come, and they did sleep together while she was married to someone else and while David was married to someone else. So, uh, the next couple of verses, uh, the she was pregnant. 
she was with child. So rather than you know admitting is wrong and trying to rebuild things the correct way and whatnot, David tried to hide it by first he he said, uh, hey, her husband's name was Uriah. So she's, he calls to the generals of the army and he says, let this guy come home, thinking that the first thing the guy will do is, of course, go right to his wife. But her hubby had, had really pretty high morals, and he would not sleep with his wife as long as his troops and their families and everything else were away from their homes and their wives. Um, he didn't think that was right. So then David tried to get him drunk, <laughs> thinking that, you know, once he's drunk, he'll have less inhibitions and whatnot, and he'll go sleep with his wife. Well, that didn't work either. So David deliberately set it up. So, okay, put, put Uriah in the very front lines and then send him into an impossible duty so that her hub, husband would be killed. So, again, he tried three things to cover up his sin rather than admitting what he was doing was wrong and stop it. So uh, the generals obeyed him. They sent the hubby to the front lines into an impossible battle, and he was killed. Um, and um, Bathsheba mourned. Of course, by you know, she knew she was pregnant, but she maybe wasn't showing yet, and that kind of thing. David took her into his house and married her, trying to legitimize the adultery by you know marrying her, and and then that way the child would be his and stuff. But what he had done displeased the Lord, and you'll see in Second uh, Samuel, uh, the very last verse, it does say, "But the thing David had done displeased the Lord." Then we head off into chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12. So the, the Lord sent his prophet Nathan to go talk to David about this. Nathan confronted David about his adultery. Now, to me, there's many things we could learn. You know, so far, David's tried to cover his tracks. So we can see that this is fairly typical, that adulterers are going to try to cover their tracks, and then they're going to try to legitimize their adultery. But what... The, the way to address it is just the way Nathan did. He, he went straight up to the king and he confronted him straight away. about. He told him a little story, but then he also confronted him and said, you are the man who's done this thing. Nathan told David that because he had used the sword of the, the enemy to kill the husband, that the sword would never depart from his house. That means that David's actions affected his children and his grandchildren. And again, we have a great lesson there, that when people commit adultery, it does um, affect their children. You know, it, I think a lot of times adulterers like to think, well, it's just me and the other, um, me and my spouse and maybe the other person and their spouse who are going to be affected. But what they, they don't realize is that it's going to be all, you know, your own children, all the other person's children, and their parents and their aunts and uncles, their siblings, their, because grandparents might not see their ch grandchildren as much because they're off with the ex now. So all those people are also affected. And then the grandchildren, because since the children were affected by the devastation of the adultery and the divorce that, that sometimes comes, their grandchildren will be affected because maybe they'll have lack of trust. Maybe they'll be taught how to don't trust people from their own parents because the parents learn not to trust from watching their parents commit adultery. So it affects 
a ton of people and it directly affects your children and your grandchildren. So moving a little further on down in chapter 12, uh, Nathan told him that his own house would be, he called it a calamity, which I thought was a great word, but his own house would be the cause of calamity. That he did adultery in secret, but that God was going to judge him in public. And so what happens is Nathan is telling him, you're going to affect your children and your grandchildren, but also, just so you know, it's going to be your own children who rise up against you and, you know, cause hurt and end up killing, either, you know, attempting to kill, whatever. So it's a, it's a serious situation. So when David heard all these things from Nathan, this is the one thing that I always consider to be like um in a weird in a strange way it's, it's encouraging what david did he reprint he repented he did a true repentance um and what he did he did not blame shift he didn't try to blame others he didn't try to avoid looking at his own sin he agreed that he did it and he sorrowed for what he had done and he uh wrote psalm 51 as his as a poem if you will for his repentance and he changed 180 degrees uh, like i said this always gives me hope because david was the you know the apple of god's eye and god gave him everything you can see this in in chapter 12 god says to him i, I gave you the whole kingdom and i would have given you more if you asked for it but instead what you did is turn around and act in a way that that displeased me David wasn't perfect, and so to me, in a way, that always gives me a little bit of hope because I also recognize that I'm not perfect, and, and you're not perfect, and, and, you know, dear hubby is not perfect. So I have hope because the Lord still loved him despite his imperfection. Also, David committed adultery, and usually, like, you know, people think in their heads, the big sins, right? <laughs> Murder, adultery, right? Well, David committed what would what people consider to be a, the big sin, and he truly repented and was able to repair that relationship with God. Uh, God was gracious enough to, you know, repair it, if you know what I mean. And then, so there, there to me, that's a, a message of hope, that there is a possibility of restoration. And I, I don't know, I find that encouraging. Now the real lesson of David and his, his adultery with Bathsheba. After he was forgiven, after he had repented and written Psalm 51, he was forgiven and right relationship was restored between him and God. God told David that he, that is to say David, was not going to die, but that the child born of adultery was going to die. Now, David begged and pleaded with God. He, like, literally, like they say in the, uh, the chapter here that he lived in sackcloth and ashes begging for the child's life in in his holiness david or god did allow david to still experience the consequences of his adultery that is to say the child did die also as god had told david his older sons rose up against him when they got older and they tried to take the throne and they ended up being killed and things they were killed in the coup attempt and this is the the Again, the consequence of his adultery that God told him was going to happen, that his, his family would, be, would live by the sword. Again, I find that str strangely encouraging, if you will, because 
God loved David, and he, and in his love, he still allowed him to experience the consequence of what he chose to do. You choose adultery, you're going to have the consequences. So when we uh, try to uh, have our, our uh, disloyal spouse avoid the consequences of adultery, that's not loving them. Uh, they, the fastest way people will learn to stop and repent and learn about the severity of adultery is by allowing them to experience. If you choose this, the consequence is that, natural consequence. That's this notable account of David and his uh, situation of adultery. Now let's turn our focus to Hosea. The, this is a, a one of the minor prophet books uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, this is one that is often used uh, by people, I believe, incorrectly to sort of say we have to just sit around and wait, that the loyal spouse has to just sit around and wait for their disloyal to sort of come around and under no circumstance do you ever divorce, you just sort of let them can carry on their affair and you... I truly do not believe that that is the message that's being um, delivered in the book of Hosea. Now, altogether, there are 14 chapters in Hosea. We are going to focus, I think, on the, on the, the first three primarily, and then a little bit uh, we'll go over the others. The book of Hosea is um, actually one of the first times, is the, the first prophet to use marriage as a metaphor for the covenant between God and Israel. That is to say, God and his bride, the, the, um, his redeemed people. In the book of Hosea, whenever there's husband or husband imagery, that would be a metaphor for God. And whenever there's wife and wife imagery, that would be relating to Israel. He was speaking to directly. And, and also, now that we're into the New Testament age, if you will, <laughs> to the bride of Christ, his church. Also, just so you know, uh, Hosea influenced later prophets, like, like the prophet Jeremiah was deeply influenced by Hosea. What happened is the nation of Israel had been kind of divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is the one that Hosea is specifically speaking to. They were kind of called Israel and Judah. Uh, the Judah was for the southern kingdom. And Israel had been faithless. They had been warned, and they had resisted all the warnings, and they had um, committed infidelity against God by worshiping other gods and pursuing other gods, and despite all the warnings and whatnot, they just continued in their infidelity. And so God was trying to tell them that he was going to punish them. So what he did is with, uh, we're starting with chapter one of Hosea. He asked Hosea to marry a woman who was uh, sexually immoral. Uh, the woman's name is Gomer. He talks about his marriage in chapter one. And it's biographical, that is to say, Hosea is writing about his own marriage. And this is the metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. So Hosea marries this woman. He loves her in that he is trying to provide for her. He is taking care of her. He's, um, you know, offering her a place to live and feeding her and, and those things. And yet the woman is unfaithful to him. And so in chapter uh, specifically, especially in chapters one and two, 
he's uh, Hosea describes you know his marriage and his life with Gomer in chapter 2 there's a description of a divorce the divorce is uh, the ending of the covenant between Hosea and Gomer but it also again see because there's this metaphor is continuously going it's a metaphor for the ending of the covenant between God and the northern kingdom Israel However, it's, it's most likely that this was like a symbolic act that Hosea did basically at the command of God. Um, when Hosea divorced Gomer for infidelity, the idea was so that they could, the Israelites could see this is what God is going to do to you. He's going to divorce you if you don't stop. And then they used that occasion of the divorce to preach the message of God's rejection of the northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, chapter 2 kind of ends with the declaration that God will one day renew the covenant and will take Israel back in love. So, what do you think happens in chapter 3? In chapter 3, God commands Hosea to go and seek out Gomer once again. We don't know why this situation comes up, but he has to buy Gomer back. Uh, either she sold herself into slavery for a debt or she is with a lover who demands money to get her back, something, because he has to buy her back. Uh, he takes her home, but he um, keeps himself from sexual intimacy with her for many days, and this is to symbolize the fact that Israel will be without a king for, for some years, but that God will bring Israel back, even if it costs him. So you can see that the message in Hosea is not sit around and just let your disloyal have their adultery and, and hope that God kind of... The, the point of the book of Hosea was to remind us that when we are pursuing anything above God, we're committing adultery. And that in the same way that a husband laments when his wife is unfaithful, that God laments our breaking of the covenant. In uh, the next chapters, chapters 4 to 10, there's this series of prophetic sermons. But the next ones that come up are actually pretty good. Uh, chapter 11 is actually God's lament over the necessity of having to give up the people that he loves. And it, again, is a metaphor for the way that a spouse would lament when they find out that their, that their spouse has been unfaithful. Uh, in chapter 12... Hosea is pleading for Israel's repentance. Again, great imagery, because because when you first find out that your spouse uh, committed adultery, you plead with them to end their affair and return to the marriage. Then chapter 13, it's, it's talking about the destruction of the kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians because they didn't repent. And again, it would be just like a loyal spouse trying to warn their disloyal, look at all the damage that's going to be done, and look at all the hurt and pain that's going to come if you won't end your adultery and reconcile. And then finally, the last chapter, chapter 14. Uh, Hosea urges Israel to, to seek forgiveness and uh, promises that it will be restored, but also urging faithfulness to God. And again, this is very similar to the way a loyal spouse might say, you know, have you ended your affair yet? No? Come talk to me about reconciling when you have, in order to let their disloyal spouse know there could be a restoration if they would be faithful. So, the book of Hosea, to me, is uh, much 
it, it kind of gives us some of the uh, ways, like we can see the way that adultery plays out, even back in the Old Testament. Um, the things that Hosea went through as a, as, a, as a man, as a husband, are the things that, that the loyal spouse would go through and feel. But it's also much more so in the bigger picture for us to recognize and realize that we have been unfaithful to God and to um, put our trust in Him, to restore the, you know, to repent for what we've done, restore the relationship with God by putting our faith in, in Him and, and the way that He has provided, which is Jesus Christ. This is the, the notable cases of adultery in the Bible. So I hope that you'll join us next week. Um, and if you, as always, you know, if you have any questions or want to discuss the podcast, you can reach us at affaircare at gmail.com. Or uh, you can f feel free to come on to our site, which is, of course, affaircare.com, and make a comment. And, and we would be happy to, to write with you and talk with you. And uh, hopefully God will, will bless you with this study of uh, biblical precepts uh, regarding adultery. So thanks. <laughs> Bye.